Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And Father, we just ask that as we stand here before you in your presence and open the word of God that by your Holy Spirit in each and every one of our lives that you'd open our minds to understand and comprehend these scriptures that you've set before us to study this morning. We pray that your same spirit that breathed out these words would just be our teacher and our interpreter and that by your Holy Spirit, you'd speak personally and directly into each one of our lives, every thought and intent behind this passage and what you want to say to us personally this morning. Lord, you know what we're asking and you know the help that we need. Help us to be alert and attentive. And we just pray that you would have our full attention and our heart would be fertile soil. So bless your word and speak to our hearts. We ask believing that's what you want to and will do in Jesus' wonderful name. And everyone said... Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever noticed today how it seems that many often rudely mock God and sort of ridicule and scoff at and mock whatever is good and righteous? And I have to step back and ask, why is that? Why is our generation, it seems, so characterized by just the audacity of human beings feeling no problem whatsoever to just rudely mock God and disrespect what is good and wholesome and righteous. And maybe as a follower of the Lord yourself, you experience some of that. And I guess the question becomes then, as a follower of the Lord, how should you handle or respond to criticism or ridicule or mockery for your faith? Well, this passage addresses that very issue. And this passage instructs us that as followers of the Lord, uh, that we should trust Jesus amidst mockery. It's going to happen, and therefore we should trust Jesus in the midst of it. If you look with me as we begin our text in verse 1, Peter here writing to believers, again he calls them beloved, expressing his care for them. He says, beloved, I now write to you this second epistle. Now he waits till chapter 3 to tell them the reason, in essence, he's writing this letter. That's the word epistle means, a letter. But he's expressing to them here, I've written to you now this second epistle. That's why it's called Second Peter. 
in both of which letters he says, I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. So here Peter is informing uh, those whom he loves the reason that he was writing to them once again. He wrote them his first letter. We studied that together. And now we read this second letter that later on Peter writes and sends to the same group of Christians scattered throughout the area of Asia Minor. And he tells them it was basically to stimulate their minds by refreshing their spiritual memories of things that they already knew. He wasn't necessarily trying to present clever and new concepts to impress them with his spiritual insight, but quite to the opposite, really what he was trying to do was just refresh their spiritual memory of what they already knew was true in light of all the exposure to falsehood that they were being sort of indoctrinated with. In fact, we saw back in chapter one of this letter that Peter had already said this, where he said, look, as long as I'm in this tent, he said back in chapter one, I feel it is my obligation not to neglect stirring up your memory and reminding you of what is true. So important to see here, Peter basically is just uh, repeating things that these Christians already knew. He's reminding them of basic, rudimentary, spiritual truths, fundamental doctrines and things that they already knew. And what he's doing is reinforcing to them what they already know is right. He's just reinforcing concepts and truths that they had already learned by restating them once again. Now, anyone who is a teacher, maybe some of you are teachers or you've been in a role where you've had to teach, whether sports or education or in some capacity, anyone who is a teacher understands that one of the best ways to get those you're trying to communicate something to to understand and grasp is by using the tool of repetition by restating and repeating again and again the very thing that you're trying to communicate because one of the best ways to learn and get established and understand something is by repetition. So teachers understand the importance and the value of repeating truths. And whether it is in other learning and certainly it is very critical in spiritual learning, there are certain things that quite honestly just need to be repeated periodically. For us spiritually, there are truths that we know that we understand on the basis and foundational level as we begin to study God's word. But there are certain spiritual truths I know for myself that I need to just have them repeated continuously and periodically to hear them again and again and again, to just be reminded of them. That's what helps those truths take root in our understanding. And many times it refreshes our minds and sort of redirects our focus and attention back to what is right if we've maybe forgotten what is true or we've moved away and gotten off track a little bit it sort of realigns us like going to the chiropractor sort of realigns our our spiritual vertebrae and helps us to be back in alignment once again because these minds of ours which are depraved many times can be very deceived and polluted with all kinds of junk because of what other people are saying to us all the time. Whether it's what we're hearing through the radio or through television or social media, I mean, there is so much junk and lies and information and things that people are saying that are constantly being sown into our minds. And then if that were not bad enough, my mind is so depraved and messed up, just I can convince myself of wrong things just because of how I feel in a moment or my frustrations and my sinful tendencies. So because of that, 
the purity of our minds. Peter says, I'm trying to stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. The purity of our minds a lot of times gets polluted by the junk that's being sewn into it or our own wrong ideas. So therefore, being reminded of known truth kind of stirs the pot in our mental banks and almost serves as like a filter to kind of draw out of our minds wrong ideas and error at times that can be present there. And when someone reinforces what we know is right, we sort of get realigned and it helps us to stay on course and sometimes just get back on track, which is something that we all need. And I would say this this morning by way of application, being from Peter's perspective, perhaps sometimes the best form of communication, whether you're writing a note uh, for a loved one, maybe you're a parent writing a note to stick it in the lunchbox of one of your children or in your husband's lunchbox or you're writing a note for your wife or, or maybe you're writing an email or maybe you're writing a text, which is a very useful tool nowadays if you use it for good and godly reasons, that sometimes maybe that little note that you write, maybe sometimes the best form of communication is just to stir up someone's mind by just lovingly and honestly reminding them of what they already know. And just sort of jogging their memory once again that the Lord loves you. Or, or just reminding them of some simple truth because the truth of the matter is a lot of times error is causing our minds to constantly drift and get polluted and just an honest, direct reminder, a simple reminder, a simple text, a simple email, a simple note can really do wonders sometimes to stir people's minds up to think correctly if they're beginning to get off track a little bit. He goes on, verse 2, he says, that his heart is that you may, Peter says, be mindful of the words which were spoken before, this is what he wants them to be thinking about, the words that were spoken before by the holy prophets, the Old Testament prophets, and of the commandments of us, Peter says, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. So here in verse 2, Peter reminds them of what he wanted them to call to mind or to remember this is what he wants them to recall and look at our text there what he wants them to think through clearly is the word of god he refers in verse 2 here both to the old testament and the new testament scriptures the first phrase he uses there in verse 2 is he says i want you to recall or think about and be mindful of those words that were spoken by the holy prophets he says i want you to think about what the old testament prophets have written that's a reference to the old testament scriptures peter already spoke of the reliability of the old testament scriptures at the end of chapter one where he said no scripture is of private interpretation but he says prophecy never came by the will of men but these holy men of god spoke as they were being moved by the holy spirit and then as he speaks of the old testament he then in the remainder of the verse gives a reference to the New Testament scriptures that were being canonized at this time. He says also that you would be mindful and recall the commandments of us, verse 2, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Now that's a reference to what was being sort of accrued into the New Testament canonization 
which was a composition of the gospel records, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all the New Testament epistles and letters of which Peter and Paul and the apostles were writing and recording at this time that were the authorized writings. So it was the words and commandments spoken both in the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures that Peter wanted believers to remember and to recall because he knew that thinking through scripture is what would establish them spiritually. And that thinking through and pondering Scripture, it would safeguard them from error. Listen, Peter wants our minds to be saturated with the Word of God. It is a good thing when your mind becomes saturated with the Word of God because as your mind is saturated with the Word of God, then you can recall it quite easily as you need it and you will need it a lot if you're going to live in a world full of lies and error and deception. I love how in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit is poured out at Pentecost and everybody's wondering, what's going on? And, and, and Peter stands up and he says, this is that which was spoken by the words of the prophet Joel. What does Peter do? He recalls out of his mental faculties the words of the prophet Joel and is able to explain this is what is happening among us right now. This is the fulfillment of a prophecy. This is what the word of God said would happen. And he's able to interpret his present circumstances according to what the scripture says. And he's able to call to mind. It is good to have a good, strong, working knowledge of the word of God. Paul told Timothy, a young man in the faith, he said, be diligent, or some translations say study, to show yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Peter's going to say at the end of this letter that we should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And he says the reason is, because he says some men will, will t even twist the scriptures to their own distortion and deception and you can be led away with error. So as we grow in the knowledge of God and his word, it safeguards us. We can call to mind the words of scripture so that we can use that as a filter to sort of process the things that we experience in this life and the other voices to evaluate everything through the lens of God's word. Hey, can I challenge you to saturate your mind with the word of God so that the lens that you look at this world through would be through the lens of God's word. That as things happen, it's a wonderful thing when things happen to you or when things happen to someone else and they ask your input, that, that you can explain or look at it through the lens of God's word. I tell you this, quite honestly, I'm not a very smart guy. I, you know, I, I have my HSD and my CDO, I, I, I have a high school diploma and I'm a college dropout. That's the extent of it right there. But I live my life by one book, which makes it very simple for me. I'm not even a real big reader. I struggle with reading comprehension. But I find that if I just live by one book, it makes life quite easy. Because whatever happens, whatever going on, I can just always okay, interpret it through one book. I don't interpret it through how I feel. I'm going to interpret through what my rights are or, or how I you know, think about the situation or what everybody else is saying or what's Dr. Phil saying. No, I can interpret it. What does God's word say? Because that's what the truth is. 
So I can just interpret it through the lens of Scripture and it says right, wrong, yes, no, right, left, forward, backward. And Peter says, I want you to have the Word of God in your mind, he says, so that then as you contemplate the words of the prophets and the words of the commandments of the, the gospel letter, uh, Gospels and the letters in the New Testament, he says, this will help you and see as we live in these end times and these last days... May we be a people who stay mindful of what the scriptures say. Because the messages of our world system are full of lies. But Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. It'll set you free to live the way God intends, which is the best way for your life anyway. Look with me, he goes on, verse 3, saying, knowing this, first, that scoffers will come in the last days. Mockers, the idea is walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? For since the fathers fell asleep or died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Here we begin to see the reason that Peter wanted them to reflect upon the truth of God's word. And that was quite simply to prepare them for and also to protect them from scoffers. Or we might say mockers. He says here in verse 3, look at the text. He says, scoffers, know this, he says. It's a first order of importance in the last. He says, scoffers will come in the last days. Now, scoffer, mocker, the idea is someone who ridicules, someone who criticizes, someone who makes disparaging remarks and and questions things with a, a disrespectful tone, makes fun through questioning. And unfortunately, there has always been and there will always be people who mock God. The Bible tells us very clearly that when Jesus was on earth, When God was here in human flesh, humanity mocked God as he was present here in flesh among us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. They mocked Jesus to the point of his death on the cross. They kept mocking him. And there will always be people who mock the Lord, who mock the things of God, who ridicule scripture, who ridicule what the scriptures declare, who mock those who believe the scriptures and follow the Lord. One man said this, I quote, he said, a scoffer is someone who treats lightly that which should be taken seriously. That's a good description. Someone who treats lightly that which should be taken seriously. But notice the Bible, the credible record that we hold in our hands, God predicted hundreds of years ago that the times, the last days, would bring about an increase in scoffers or mockers on this earth. It will be a time, the end times, the last days, it will be a time that is marked by people who chronically, disrespectfully challenge the word of God and mock God and scoff at the things of God and mock the people of God and their beliefs and the way they live. Now, this morning... That means, if you're a follower of the Lord, when people mock you, when people ridicule you and criticize you for what you believe and the way that you live and serve the Lord, when they mock you, listen, you don't have to get offended. And you don't have to get defensive and take it personal. What you should do when they mock you is say, thank you. Because actually, guess you know what? You have just proved to me the truth of the Word of God. Because the Bible said hundreds of years ago, 
before you were ever born that you were actually going to mock and scoff and ridicule me and my God and what I believe. And in fact, by your mockery, you had just fulfilled prophecy in front of my eyes one step further and have further convinced me that God's word is reliable and that God's word is true. So thank you for reinforcing my faith today. Thank you for showing me, let God be true and every man a liar. Thank you. He says, this will be a mark of the last days. He tells us in verse 3 as well, what's the motivation behind mockers? Why do people mock? Well, Peter tells us one of the motivations. He says, that is because they are walking, verse 3, according to their own lusts. Walking according to their own lusts. In other words, their lifestyle is occupied with selfishly indulging the desires of their own sinful and selfish interests. And because they live a lifestyle that is consumed with fulfilling their own lusts and serving their own sinful pleasures and passions, he says that's a large reason why they scoff and mock God and why they mock the things of God. The reason, he says, is they're trying to convince their own conscience within which they're struggling with. They're trying to convince their own conscience that spiritual realities don't exist. So God doesn't exist and God didn't create the heavens and the earth and Jesus was not who he said he was and, and Jesus is not coming again to the earth because see if they can convince themselves of that reality which they're trying to do through their mockery then there's nobody to be accountable to for the way that they're living sinfully. They don't want to have to give answer to someone for their lifestyle. So they mock and, and criticize and ridicule God's existence and Jesus' return and all those things because if that's the reality that those things aren't true, then it eliminates personal responsibility and they don't have to feel any sense of conviction or concern to have to one day answer to God or give account to God. So they're trying to suppress the conviction of their own conscience by doing this because the truth of the matter is if such realities are true, if God did create everything and there is a creator, then guess what? You're his creation and you're accountable for how you're living. And you're one day going to have to answer for everything that you do in this life. And you are personally accountable. And one day you are going to stand before Jesus Christ all alone with nobody else holding your hand and you're going to have to give account to him as the one Lord and the one Savior of all things. So what they do is wanting freedom to continue to live in sin, wanting the, the liberty to continue to pursue their selfish, lustful cravings and live without restraint. What they do is they harden their hearts and they mock God as a defense system, as a coping mechanism for their own struggle within their conscience. They scoff and they mock and they ridicule in order to escape and deny the reality of what it would mean if those things are true and they had to accept that. Jesus said it this way in John 3. He said, Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus said, this is human nature. People who are practicing evil, they hate the light and they stay away from it because they don't want the light to shine on what's going on in their life because then they're exposed, they're laid open. 
So this is a great motivation to understand why people do mock God and mock the things of God because they want the liberty to keep living sinfully and selfishly so they try and criticize those things to not accept the reality that they're honestly going to have to answer to this God if they admit that he's real. And they recognize that he is one day going to return to judge the earth and accountability of all men. Verse 4, he says sort of a little bit of a sample of how they scoff. He begins to give sample now in verse 4. This is what these mockers and scoffers are doing. Notice, they're questioning and they're ridiculing. He says, they say things like, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? Where's the, this promise of Jesus coming back to the earth? They ridicule the return of Christ. And as believers, we do have clear promises in the Bible that Jesus will return, that Jesus is coming again to this earth. Jesus himself in John 14, 2 and 3 said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. In the book of Acts, as Jesus was ascending back up into heaven, after he rose from the dead, going back up into the heaven to the right hand of his Father from whence he came. In Acts 1, it says, While they looked steadfastly toward heaven as Jesus went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, angels, saying, This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you see him go into heaven. And see, it's these promises that Christians and believers held to trusting that Jesus is coming again, that Jesus will return. This is what scoffers and mockers were trying to ridicule and question with scoffing tones, saying, oh yeah, well why hasn't it happened yet? How come Jesus hasn't come back yet? Where's he at? And, and, and you know, how come he hasn't come back still? It's probably because he doesn't exist where he really wasn't who he said he was. And, and so they mock and they question the return of Christ and, and make it to look in their perspective as a foolish idea and they want to question its reality. And there's an irreverent attitude that basically almost wants to imply that God never has and never will intervene into the world of humanity. That's why he mentions in verse 4 there, he says that they say also, for since the fathers have died, all things just continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now that statement there, characterizing some of the mockery, basically is a, a, a characterization of the belief or the theory of what we would call uniformitarianism, which is kind of a naturalistic approach to life that rules out divine intervention, that God never has and never will intervene in the universe or the history of mankind. Uniformitarianism is basically a belief that all things always existed as they were and they will just continue the way they were. The universe is a closed system. Nothing and no one has ever been involved. Nothing will ever change it. It's always operated as a closed system by itself. And really it's the basis and the background to evolutionary theory. And these mockers basically would say, look, God didn't begin life at creation. It's a closed system. Everything's just evolving and, and it's always been that way. So it is foolish and ludicrous to think that some miracle is going to happen and, and the skies are going to part and somehow God's going to step in. And, 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 and they just begin to say, look, nothing's ever changed since the beginning of time and nothing's ever going to change. 
And Peter here in these next verses answers both accusations, but he answers them in the reverse order. First, he answers in verses 5 to 7 the fact that they say God's never been involved and never will intervene. And then in verse 8 and 9, he addresses the reality that Jesus will honor the promise of his coming. Look at verse 5, he goes on. He says, this, notice, mockers, this they willfully, circle that word, willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So he addresses in verse 5 here how scoffers and mockers, notice he says purposely, purposely deny known truth in their own minds and conscience. Do you see what verse 5 there? Peter says this they willfully Forget The idea there is they deliberately ignore. They purposely deny or disregard. And what is it they're denying and disregarding purposely? They're trying to ignore and dismiss the reality of the truth of God's creation, that he spoke it into existence by the authority of his word. And they're trying to willfully ignore in their conscience God's judgment of the world that happened once before by a universal flood. He says, verse 5, This they willfully ignore, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water. Now that verse there speaks of God's creative acts and how God by his spoken word spoke things into existence as we have recorded in the book of Genesis. How everything that exists in the universe is the result of a loving, powerful, all-wise creator who is a master designer spoke into existence an orderly and a complex universe that exists to this day and the inhabitants that are on it. He says here in our verse that it was by the word of God, by his spoken word and authority, that God spoke things into existence, that the heavens and the earth came into existence, the earth standing out of the water. The idea there, again, if you have notes, Genesis chapter 1, verse 6 to 10, describes how God spoke things in this orderly way, separated the dry land from the water, bringing creation into existence. And though scientific evidence, through research, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly proves and validates creation and design, mockers who exist will willfully, deliberately, suppress the truth in their own conscience and deny evidence and fact and dispute and ignore purposely suppressing the truth again why because if it's true now they have to give account to someone now they have to answer to someone and not wanting to do that what they do is they suppress that truth and they also want to disacknowledge the fact that God would speak into existence. Notice verse 5 says that creation happened by his word, by God's spoken word. Why do they want to deny that? That God would just speak things into existence because if God by his word spoke things into existence, then that means that the word of God has authority. And if God's word has authority oh no, then that means I must be responsible for what God says in his word. And I don't want to face that. Romans chapter 1 speaks of how people in creation, it says, they suppress the truth. 
They push it down. Although it's evident in creation that his invisible attributes show that God created and he exists. And though it's testifying in their own conscience, it says they know God exists, but they don't glorify him as God. They suppress, they, they push down the truth and fight against it because they don't want to have to give accountability to what it would mean. Verse 6, he says as well, by which also the world that then existed in Noah's day perished, being flooded with water. So that speaks of how God, look, he has intervened at a time in human history. They were saying everything existed the way it's always existed. Nothing's ever changed. And here the Holy Spirit says, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, no, no. God, the same God who spoke things into creation, that same God also by his word spoke and declared judgment upon the very earth and universe that he created at one point in time because of the sinfulness of humanity in righteous judgment. He reflects on how in the ancient world of Noah's day that that world, he says, has perished. It was flooded with water. Here's the point. Contrary to this idea of uniformitarianism, the Bible is saying here God is involved and God has intervened. He has already intervened in times past. Genesis chapter 6 says that when God saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, he said, my spirit will not strive with man forever. And he warned that his righteous judgment would come. And after a great delay in patience, eventually God brought a powerful flood to judge and cleanse the world in his righteous judgment. So what Peter is trying to say is things have not continued as they were from the beginning of creation. That's not true. He says things have been radically changed. A worldwide flood has one at time brought judgment that caused great cataclysmic changes on this planet that we live on. And the truth of the matter is many geological conditions that exist on this planet that science and research has discovered are best explained and best attributed to a massive, powerful worldwide flood that would then cause such effects and results in the geological conditions. And let me say one other thing. Please don't buy into this idea that, oh, well, that's just a Bible account. Do your homework. There are over 200 ancient civilizations that have records of a massive universal flood that happened on this planet outside of the biblical narrative of something that took place that caused tremendous change. Those who don't want to face the reality of judgment and that God would judge the earth for men's evil, they try and suppress this reality because they don't want to have to face the concept so they'll willfully forget this reality because if they admit it, it proves, hey, then God might judge again. He might intervene once again, so they try and push this aside with mockery. Verse 7, he goes on to say, by which the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. So Peter here again declares, notice our verse, that there is a day of judgment that is coming. You know, if it's warm in here, you can turn the air on. Some people are doing this. Not because I'm talking about the day of judgment, but maybe this is purposeful, leaving the heat on. <laughs> he says this day of judgment is one day coming to bring punishment upon the ungodly. And in verse 7, the Bible begins to almost outline and describe a little bit how some of that judgment will come. Look what he says in our text there. He says the present heavens and earth 
are being reserved for fire until the day of judgment. In other words, the current heavens and earth that are now reserved by God's word are actually going to be destroyed by fire. Now, we know from, again, the Bible's account that when God brought the flood in Noah's day, remember, what did he do afterwards? After the flood came, he put what in the sky? Rainbow. rainbow. Good job, class. He put a rainbow in the sky, and that rainbow, see if you're getting hot, i got to keep you awake. That rainbow was God's sign that he would never, what? Flood the earth again as a form of judgment. It wasn't that he would never judge the earth again, but that he would never bring his judgment in the form of a worldwide flood. Instead, the Bible tells us here that next time when God brings judgment, he will use fire as the method of cleansing and judging in a righteous judgment. The heavens and earth are now, it says in our verse, reserved for fire. There's a fixed, guaranteed reservation that all things will experience the fire of God's judgment. Now, in our coming verses, we're going to see more explanation about that in verses 10 and 12. But in regards to where we're at today, why is it right now the current heavens and the earth are experiencing preservation and they haven't all melted and burned up and disintegrated yet? Well, he says in our verse, it's because everything now is being preserved or held together by the same word. That is the word of God. The same God who spoke things into existence is the God by his word of authority that will determine how long things stay intact and at what point things are going to implode and melt in a fervent heat when his judgment comes. Colossians 1 says, in Jesus, all things hold together. You know, it's very interesting to take into consideration everything that exists in our creation, it's all made up of what? Atomic structure, of atoms. And if you study an atom, that itself is a scientific wonder. An atom, when you look at an atom, basically inside an atom is the nucleus of every atom of positive protons. And, and scientific laws, laws of science tell us that like charges are supposed to do what? repel one another right you have a positive and a negative that's what attracts but like charges so here you have a nucleus of an atom of which everything is made up of atoms and inside the nucleus of an atom you have all positive protons and yet they're existing in there they should be repelling one another and blowing apart there should be constant explosions happening not to mention outside the nucleus of an atom are electrons negative charge so they should be drawing the protons out of the nucleus but yet somehow in some amazing way atoms don't blow apart somehow everything that exists made up of an atomic structure is somehow holding together without blowing apart now very very smart scientists say that's because there's invisible atomic glue wow I agree with that. His name is God. You can't see him, but by his word, he's saying, atoms stay together. And all he's got to do is say one word, and everything will blow up. Everything will blow up. Now listen, this morning, that in a sense should be a sobering reminder. Somehow you raise your fist to God and you're in charge of my life. Listen, how many times did you think about your heart beating since you've been in here this morning? Good thing God remembered, right? That's also an incredible encouragement. If God is holding together everything on this planet, 
and everything in the universe. And if God is holding all that together and He can handle the entire universe, don't you think He can handle whatever's going on in your life? I can't hold it together! I can't hold it together! You're not supposed to. God can hold it together. He's been holding it together. Just let Him hold it together. He's in charge. Let His authority rule in the situation. Well, since these scoffers and mockers were ridiculing the coming day of Christ and of the day of judgment, Peter in verse 8 and 9 counsels believers to try and encourage them amidst this mockery. Look what he says. He says, Beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and he says a thousand years is like a day. Peter says here, remember that the Lord's relationship to time is much different than ours. And this is what makes it really challenging, isn't it? We have to remember and not forget that time is relative. And there is an eternal dimension and there's a temporal present dimension and these two things coexist. I often wonder how they intermesh in ways we don't fully understand and see right now. There is an eternal dimension and there's a temporal present dimension with a time realm and a time constraint and they coexist and often this is the root cause of many misperceptions that God's not going to act because of this struggle of failing to realize that time is relative to the dimension. And he says here in our verses, there's an eternal God who's given promises. But yet those promises come to pass in a time realm dimension. So listen, no elapsement of a great amount of time is ever anything to be concerned about that is somehow God's going to forget because it's been too long. It's certainly slipped his mind by now, that promise. Or maybe it's just gone too far and, and because God hasn't addressed it yet, now he's not able because of the passage of time to still bring it to pass. No, no, that's not the case. What Peter is reminding us here of is God's measurement of time is not the same as ours. We live in a time constraint with minutes and hours and days and months and years. God inhabits the eternal dimension where time is measured differently. It's just measured by a different way. That's why in verse 8 he says here, don't forget, with the Lord one day it's as or like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. With What is one day to the Lord is like a thousand years of time for us here on earth. And what may be like a thousand years to us on this earth is like one day gone by in God's time frame. Peter probably is even thinking here of Psalm 90 verse 4 as he knew the word of God well. Psalm 94 says a thousand days in your sight are like yesterday when it is past. What Peter's alluding to here as he's talking about the promise of the coming of Christ now in verses 8 and 9 is he's saying when people say, where's the promise of his coming? Where's the promise? It's been 2,000 years. God's saying, yeah, it's been about two days. From my perspective, from your perspective, it's been 2,000 years. But from my perspective, it's only been a, a few days. So I go, Lord, when are you coming? Lord, it's been 2,000 years since you promised that you would return. Lord, where are you? When are you coming? The fact that it's been 2,000 years from a human standpoint, but from God's eternal perspective, it's been a brief moment. It's been a few days. Now, we have to remember this because it's helpful to realize this spiritual reality regarding time being relative. Because I admit firsthand, it's hard when we live in a temporal realm and we're dwelling in this realm, but yet we interact with an eternal God who gives us promises in his word and he puts promises in your heart and he's spoken things to you. 
And yet we wrestle with this because have you ever noticed that God's dealings in your life, he doesn't seem to be as a bit of a hurry as you often are. But yet he's never late. He's always right on time. I love that about the Lord. Especially because I have family members who like to run late. God's always on time. Take that for what you're worth. Free advice. God works according to his own set time, the appointed time, the appointed hour. The problem is, usually that doesn't function on my time constraint. And our world doesn't help. Microwave this, quick that, drive through that, instant, instant, instant. So when God doesn't work according to our instant generation, we begin to get concerned. Look, don't start questioning God. Don't get concerned. Don't become overwhelmed and lose heart if something is not going the way that you planned according to schedule. Can I remind you of a truth this morning? Please hear this. God can accomplish in one day what it would take a thousand years for someone else to do. Oh, Lord, and when's it going to come? It takes out a day. In one day, God can do what it would take humanity a thousand years to do. That's why it's wise to number our days, to always know that God is involved and can intervene in any way. He says, don't, don't forget that time is different. And verse 9, he then says, And the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, or slow, as some count slackness or slowness. But here's why. He says, He's long-suffering towards us, patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So Peter emphasizes the thing that makes the Lord delay, if we would call it a delay from our perspective, is he has a loving nature. And he's compassionate and patient. Notice he speaks here of his plan to fulfill his promise. He says, verse 9, when people were saying, where's the promise of Jesus' coming? Where's it at? He says, verse 9, the Lord is not slack. He hasn't slacked off concerning his promise. He fully intends to fulfill his promise and to return to this earth as he said he would. And he says, the fact that this seems to have been a delay doesn't mean that he's not going to fulfill his intentions or that he lacks the power to perform it. Or if somehow he's forsaken his plan, he says, no, the reality is, the, what's happening, he says, verse 9, is it's that the Lord is long-suffering towards us. It's his patience. It's his, his incredible mercy that causes him to suffer long and still be kind, even when people are offending him. And man, I am so thankful that God is long-suffering. Furthest thing from what I am. And we're riding in here this morning. One of my daughters told me about a you know, perverse and inappropriate statement that was made towards one of my other daughters uh, walking on the boardwalk by some young man. And you know, I, 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 I was ready to get a South Jersey manhunt going on and say, Rick, you can teach this morning. I'm going to get a few hombres and <sighs> we'll find him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, if you're God, people are spitting in your face. And mocking you. And ridiculing. The person who's keeping your heart beating and your lungs breathing. And who's given the very best of his son to bleed his blood out into the earth. So that we could be forgiven. And, and, and God's so long-suffering. He's so patient. And, and the reason he's so patient, Peter says, is he's not willing. He doesn't desire that any would perish, but that all would come 
to repentance. The preference, the desire of the Lord is he keeps being patient and tolerant and he takes abuse and mockery and scoffing and people spitting in his face and turning away from him and sinning right in his sight and not caring and brazenly living in ungodly and evil ways and putting their fist up to him by the way that they live. And he says it's because his desire, he's not willing that any would perish. It's his love. That he wants to leave a window of opportunity open. He desires, it says, that all would come to repentance. Important word. That word repentance doesn't mean that you feel sorry for a mistake you made. The word repentance means a change of mind which causes a change of action. A choice to live differently. A choice to say, the way I've been living is wrong. And I admit it's wrong, so I'm going to turn around and live the way that's right. What I've been doing is wrong, or the way I've been thinking about God is wrong. I'm going to repent, and I'm going to live differently. Repentance isn't something we talk about. Repentance is something we do. Repentance is something that is seen. It's a response to our error before a righteous and a holy God. And he says God's desire is that people would have the opportunity to turn from error, to repent. He doesn't desire to see people fall into the punishment of their own sin. So he leaves more time, he gives more time waiting, waiting for people to repent. He wants people to have an opportunity, a window still to turn. He wants backslidden Christians who are living in rebellion to the Lord. They profess Christ, but now they've wandered back into some wrong and sinful lifestyle and they're dishonoring the Lord. And he wants backslidden Christians to have an opportunity to repent, to turn back. He wants those who are unsaved and unconverted to have the opportunity to repent. Aren't you glad that Jesus waited to return till you got saved? I got saved in 1992. I am sure glad that he didn't come in 1991. I wouldn't be standing here, I tell you. An air condition would not help where I've been. But he patiently, graciously, in his long-suffering, he waits he waits, leaving the window of opportunity open. Acts 17 says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man, Jesus, whom he has ordained. Listen, this is the Lord's desire repentance, the opportunity to turn from error, to turn to what's right. And this morning, if you're not saved, part of the reason the Lord's delaying is He's waiting for you. He wants you. He desires that you would repent before the window shuts. So stop holding the show up, would you? Maybe this morning it means repenting from a life of being self-governed and sinful and saying, I will turn from that and I'm going to turn and follow Jesus, put my trust in Him. Maybe this morning repentance for you, if you're not a Christian yet, maybe means repenting from a religious perspective where you actually think you're fine with God because you do your religious thing. And many people need to repent of a religious perspective where they think, hey, well, you know, I'm, I, I do this and I do that and I follow through and, and I go make my dues. I say hi to God a few times a year. I, I read some scriptures. I pray some prayers. And so I, I'm all right with God. I'm right with God. I come to God on my terms. No, you don't. If righteousness could be attained through the law, then Jesus Christ, the Bible says, died in vain. God did not send his son to this earth in incredible love to live among us sinless in a way that we can't and be beaten and punched and spit upon and crucified and nailed to a cross and humiliated 
if there was something that I could do to jump through a few religious hoops to be right with God. The fact that Jesus did that is an indication religion doesn't work. God wants relationship. It means us recognizing I'm a sinner before you, God, as a righteous and a holy God. And I need Jesus to forgive me. Save me, Jesus. Reveal yourself to me. Change my heart. Take over my life. I repent of my sinful selfishness. I repent of all my religious works that I thought somehow were acceptable to you. And, and I embrace Jesus. I believe, Lord. I believe we're saved by faith, by the grace of God, by believing. And the Lord is leaving a window open to do that.